Shalom and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Among the big ideas in this week's Torah portion, Exodus chapters 25 through 27, Truma, is that not only does God love us, but God also promises, get this, to live among us. Here's what it says. Va'asuli mikdash v'shachanti betocham. God says to our people, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell, not in it, the Torah says, build it so that I may dwell in them, the Israelites. That's the purpose of the tabernacle for God we Jews are instructed to build. The ancient tabernacle, also known as the Mishkan, the Mikdash, or sanctuary that our ancestors would carry with them through the wilderness was nothing less than a scale model, a trial run for a much bigger building project. The temple in Jerusalem by King Solomon. Thanks to archaeologists, we know that it was 958 BCE. And 2,800 years later, in downtown Memphis, opposite the convention center, in 1854, Temple Israel, all based on this. Now, apropos of Valentine's, believe it or not, the Torah's construction project this week describes mysterious angelic figures known as, in Hebrew, kruvim, or as my history teacher at Wolfson High School in Jacksonville used to call us, sweet cherubs. (laughs) As in those Valentine's Day cards featuring cupids with bows and arrows. They always look like small, cute children, hence the word, Cherubic from the Aramaic, believe it or not, kivariva, like a child. That's the whole origin of that little Cupid. Now about this ancient tabernacle, which throughout the ages has served as the paradigm, the model for the synagogue, listen to what the rabbis said, the rabbinic sages. Three words, toho, Ratsuf Ahava. The interior of the ancient tabernacle was paved with love. During this week of both Valentine's Day and this week's Torah portion, 
the Torah's cherubim and the origin of this in every synagogue sanctuary paved with love, I am so heartened to see so many couples celebrating anniversaries in 2024 of 25 years, double high, 36 years, 50 years for special honor tonight. And I know that several of you are joining us remotely. Now, whether you're married or not, and I'll get to that, my college president of blessed memory, who ended up becoming a friend, he shared, and I wanted to share again, what he deemed are the three parts of a fulfilling life. And his wisdom came back to me in studying this week's Torah portion while watching America's observance of Valentine's Day. Dr. Rhodes' threefold prescription for living a fulfilling and fulfilled life. Someone to love, something meaningful to do, and something purposeful to hope for. We all need someone to love. The need for others is as natural and essential to our emotional and physical well-being as is our need for food and shelter. And yet, while we may all readily acknowledge the importance of having someone to love, how hard it sometimes is to achieve that goal. And oftentimes, the breakdown in our closest relationships, whether married or not, occur because of miscommunication. A rabbi from my childhood home of Dayton, Ohio, uh, Rabbi Jack Reamer, tells the story of a woman who goes to a lawyer and tells the lawyer that she wants a divorce. So the lawyer asks, do you have any grounds? She says, about half an acre. <laughs> he says, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Do you have a grudge? She says, no, we have a carport instead. By this time, the lawyer is getting frustrated. He says to her, speaking very carefully, tell me honestly, does he beat you up? She says, no, I get up in the morning before he does. <laughs> By now, the lawyer has really had it. He says to her, will you please tell me exactly why you want a divorce? And she answers, because he doesn't understand me. <laughs> before we can understand others, we have to understand ourselves. We have to know how to listen to those we love. If we truly want someone to love as a friend or a partner or whatever, 
We must be willing to share that person's sorrows no less than that person's pleasures and joys. We must be sensitive and open, not afraid to share our love with others, but more conscious of our ability to hurt those we claim to love with the things we say or do not say, the things we hear, or in the case of the person just mentioned in that story, the things we fail to hear. My other favorite story of an older couple married for 58 years um, is a sad story, actually, and I don't think it applies to anyone I know here. So um, this older couple was sitting on the porch in their rocking chairs, And the older, in this case, it happened to be a man and a woman, the older man looked straight at the field and suddenly broke the silence of the hour. And he says, you know, my wife, sometimes it takes everything I have within me to keep me from telling you how much I love you. How sad when we withhold words of love from those we claim to love. How tragic it is when we injure those we love against our own deepest wishes and longings. Now, marriage is not for everyone. And I'm going to share with you a quote from Rashi that you're not going to believe. He says that in cases of abuse, infidelity, addiction, divorce is a mitzvah. Divorce is actually commanded in Judaism. So whether a person is married or not, it's no fun to live life without someone to share it with. Whether that someone is a spouse, a friend, a sibling, a child, all of the above, we would do well to pay closer attention to our love relationships, the way we communicate, the way we forget to say what is in the innermost recesses of our hearts. Something meaningful to do. So much of Judaism turns on this phrase. Whenever I teach basic Judaism, I always emphasize that one of the cardinal principles for understanding the Jewish faith family is the concept of doing. What one does matters even more than what one professes to believe since the proof is in your actions, not your theology. Ask a Jew what the Hebrew word for faith is. It may take a while to get an answer. Ask any Jew what the Hebrew word for a good deed or sacred obligation is. You're all saying it. Even people who can't read Hebrew, they know mitzvah. The doing in Judaism is the doing of mitzvot. And the way we make the words of the Shema, we just sang our own personal pledge of allegiance, is by answering the something to do with doing things that link us to the generations before us, to God, to others. Someone who was burnt out in their career this week came to meet with me and told me that they made peace with it by understanding that they're working to live, not living for their work anymore. And another told me, thankfully, he's staying in Memphis instead of making more income elsewhere because he finds his work 
meaningful in Memphis, outside of his work, for the added mitzvahs he gets to do in this city in dire need of mitzvah people. Someone to love, something meaningful to do, and finally, what would a Jewish person be without hope? What would any person be? We, we Jews have questions, we Jews have doubts, but we also have hope, an eternal hope in spite of our losses and setbacks. To be a Jew means never to despair, which is why the state of Israel chose as its national anthem Ha-Tik-Va, which means literally the hope. Despite centuries of persecution and dislocation, despite the coming and going of civilizations far mightier than ours, Judaism is alive and well, even flourishing in Memphis, Tennessee. No matter what others took away from us, they could never remove our hope and belief in the goodness of God despite life's uncertainties. Although far from perfect, the world is a good world with many possibilities. So when we're faced with a challenge, why assume the worst? Why not hope for the best? So I confess the place I learned a great deal about hope was interning at a hospital in Los Angeles, Cedar sinai before I moved to Cincinnati and Memphis. And while serving there as an assistant to the chaplain, I learned of a patient who wrote this. 40% of the things I worry about never happen. 30% are beyond my control. 12% may only happen if I continue to worry. 10% was none of my business in the first place. This leaves 8%. So I'm going to face the remaining 8% as courageously and with as much hope as I can. This patient and so many other patients have taught me never to lose hope. Even those with whom I've spoken who are close to death and at peace with it have maintained their hope in the goodness of life, in the possibility of hope and joy for their loved ones who would survive them. Having something purposeful to hope for is not about shaping outcomes. It's the beginning of all participation patient and good things, including life itself. The Talmud records, so long as there is life, there is hope. Or as the French poet Edmund Flegg wrote, in every age when the cry of despair is heard, the Jew hopes. Someone to love, honestly and openly. Something meaningful to do, a life of mitzvah. Something purposeful to hope for, even when all hope seems lost. Through the way of mitzvot, our Jewish way of doing, may each of us continue to keep alive our loves, our deepest loves, and our highest hopes, our tradition, and our God expect nothing less. Amen.